We'll continue with the five faculties and the five powers, which, as you recall, are the same list. Sadda, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. And I spoke about Sadda, faith, and I was thinking I very rarely have spoken about Sadda. <laughs> In fact, I haven't given many, I haven't given retreats on this five faculties, five powers that I recall. I've given a few talks on it, but it's a good topic, very rich. And you will remember that it's also a kind of memory device for the topics in the 37 requisites that occur frequently. So it's good to have a memory of, of what this list is, that sadda, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom is a good, helps you with the 37 requisites because they are also the most frequently mentioned factors. Sadda is mentioned twice, energy nine times, mindfulness eight times, concentration four times, and wisdom mentioned. Class, anybody? Five times, good memory, you get an A. Five times, so that's your passcode for your iPad. Two nine eight four five. As we remember, the entire thirty-seven requisites have a phone number, which is eight seven five five four four four. Buddha speaking. <laughs> yes. So this is something that you just don't want to have in a book necessarily. You want ways to have these with you. These are something to be worked with all the time going through these lists and trying your own hand at saying, now, if I had to explain what faith is, what would I say? And don't cheat. Don't look <laughs> at the Vasudhimaga or something like this ahead of time. Just see what, how would you explain what faith is? What confidence is. By the way, this is one of the most critical factors because of the age we are in. It's not a big deal, I think, in Asia, in the Buddhist countries, as in certain countries, certain cultures, religion and philosophy, like ways of life, like uh, Taoism and Confucianism and so forth, um, are still thriving, vibrant, and so forth. But the world probably has never had such widespread attitudes and structures and education in uh, pure materialist technological type of attitudes to existence. Those kind of views were around at the time of the Buddha and also for the Greeks. What happened is that 
Christianity came along <laughs> for about 1800 years. <laughs> and the attitudes that like the scientific materialist technological approach to things was quite common in the fourth, third, second century, first century BC, quite regularly discussed, practiced, advocated with other views as well. And in, at the same time in India, at the time of the Buddha, there were also uh, philosophers, materialist philosophers, purely materialist philosophers. And it was a view and there was debates and considerable discussions about why that's an inadequate view of things. And in the West, it's kind of been, all alternatives have been suppressed, like the West meaning Europe and North America, at least since the arrival of Christian culture in North America. This kind of discussion, free discussion, comparing philosophies has been suppressed right up to about the 19th century or so. And you can see in certain parts of the U.S., it's still a touchy subject, isn't it? <laughs> so this is good to reflect on because we are raised in a certain time and culture and this may play out when we're examining this idea of sadda or faith because it's really faith in views it's about confidence in certain views of reality and that's where commitment has to emerge so you have to actually make choices and you will, because of the educational structures, etc., there tends to be just a lot of proliferation, which discourages commitment. This is kind of like relationships as well. Uh, the social structure permits a lot of sampling, so therefore... Commitment is less obvious. The value of commitment to a single, sort of a single stable relationship is less obvious now. But this is kind of what commitment to a view and an attitude, a, a conviction is, is that you have to commit to it in order to experience its benefits. You have to really put it on and wear it around. And that also is different type of attitude than, say, going to university and taking political science, philosophy, English literature. What else is there? <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. The liberal arts. <laughs> um, where it's, it's just an endless sampling menu and there's no expectation of commitment. It's a sampling of ideas. It's an intellectual tasting menu, but no commitment. So 
this is a different way and you can't get the next level of benefit from the Dhamma until one is really trying it on and walking around with it and looking through the lens of these things for transformation to happen. So this is why it's at first these uh, sadda, this conviction or faith, a nascent conviction, is a faculty because you are wavering with it. You are trying it. It's not strong. Uh, it will be, it can be overcome by its opposite from time to time. You become skeptical. You doubt it. You you forget about it. Find yourself not being motivated by it. So this is why it's still a faculty. It's in development. All of these five are called faculties because they are in development. Energy from time to time will be overcome. You will just feel tired and not try to work through it or refresh yourself or infuse yourself with energy, motivate yourself. And that is a lapse of this commitment to energetic pursuit of this view of, of reality. So all of these are servants to uh, a view, right view. This faith, conviction, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom are all about something. It's not just random wisdom. It's not worldly wisdom. There are, uh, Buddhism doesn't dismiss these things. Uh, mindfulness is helpful in all, both worldly, ordinary things. If you're uh, doing a PhD in science and so forth, mindfulness will help. As, as you can see, it's, it's spread widely. I see the New York Times has featured Bhante Gunaratana's book, Mindfulness in Plain English, as the Number one at the top of the 10 mindfulness books just a few days ago. I remember reading the manuscript of that. It had a paper clip on it and I said, give it to me. I said, take a look at this. What do you think of this? And I went back to my cootie <laughs> by <a> kerosene lamp <laughs> and read it, came back and said, Bhante, this is a, this is a bestseller. <laughs> well, turns out I have good judgment. Seems it set off a revolution, didn't it? Um, so yeah, it's interesting how this happens because mindfulness is universally necessary. And you see that the main complaint is the fra uh, fragmentation of, of the psyche and the fracturing of the psyche by, uh, because we have a lot of convenient distraction, entertainment, busyness, information itself. In fact, the structure of the educational system is not all just practical. It's, it is just a lot of stuff. And a lot of people with a PhD in medieval studies or 
Italian poetry and so forth need a job. <laughs> and universities need students. And so it's all kind of symbiotic. It's just, it creates itself and creates an industry of distraction and makes a, a fetish of this kind of sampling of every, every possible intellectual idea and entertainment. And that does something to your mind. That's an attitude. And so this type of mindfulness and concentration is going quite strongly against the stream. It's going past the mere paying attention to a variety of intellectual subjects. And this is unknown in uh, the university. When you talk about going past this, is it, what do you mean? There's no idea of what going past that is because you cannot have a course where you go in there and sit silently and nobody says anything. You can do this as a club, a meditation club, but you can't get paid for it. <laughs> so this is the difference, is the, these faculties of energy, mindfulness, and concentration, particularly, are quite beyond the kind of discursive activity. They're at the service of moving towards this clarity, stillness, and luminous mind, which naturally rises into wisdom. So the wisdom that we're speaking of here can't be attained through just study. Like So first, the first level of knowledge, which is not dismissed in Buddhism, is you, at the time, you would go and listen to a monk or a lay teacher talk about Dhamma. So you just have ideas. You try to pay attention to these ideas and they go past you. You probably all remember what it was like to first sort of read about Buddhism and Dhamma and all this kind of stuff. This is uh, one of the necessary uses of your mindfulness, your energy, and to some degree your concentration. It's a type of concentration, but there are three levels of all of these. So the first level is this study, simply hearing, studying. And the next level up is to run it through to make it understandable for yourself. You have to repeat it, sort it out, ask questions like, what, what do you mean by that? How, how does that work? You ask yourself these kind of questions. And as it becomes clear, then you move to the third stage of this energy, mindfulness, and concentration, which is, it's now, now where, what it's pointing at, all this information which you have first collected, then studied, then understood, and the, the uh, mark that you have understood it is that now you are able to enter into this stillness and lucidity of mind, which both mindfulness and concentration are inseparable at that stage, and energy. So when, I, when we began the retreat, I suggested to you, at least for the first three days, that you kind of stay with energy, keep yourself, you know, go out, walk, don't, don't just slump trying to sit, 
and trying to get concentration, you need to infuse yourselves with this energy, clarity, you know, brightness, so forth, before it goes into this stillness, because stillness, if it's not prepared properly, tends to sink into, into dullness. But the structure of the retreat is also that there's no kind of distractions, uh, etc. So that it winds down energy so that energy doesn't spiral off into agitation and flickering. So that's why we try to encourage you to not get lost in, in uh, philosophical things, but just to calm down but to stay energized as well so that we can get to this development of concentration with enough energy, mindfulness, that you begin to have this enter into this new type of concentration, which is simply unknown in, the, in academia. It's not known in philosophy or academia. It's not what, in the modern sense, it, it is at all. But it's too bad that they don't know about this because that is, if they want to understand the history of philosophy, that is what Socrates and Plato were after. That is where they were headed. Now they just look at these ideas. They read the books and fling around the ideas and debate and you get an A or a B or a C minus or whatever. And, and that's not what it was about at all. And so you can be a full PhD in philosophy I've spent years teaching Plato and Socrates and have not a clue that they were not interested in. That wasn't where they were going with this. And the same happens in Buddhism. You can get very academic about that. I'm sure it's quite a... Now it's because it's, uh, it's kind of popular through mindfulness and various things. There's probably lots of courses on this. But it's not where it's supposed to go. It's just not about flinging ideas around knowledgeable about that we shouldn't dismiss that so that that happens in the history of buddhism you see the the meditation monks are dismissive of those study monks you know those monks always with their books you know books and the book monks are saying well yeah well so what are you meditating on if you haven't read the books how do you what are you meditating on so it's a little so that there's a a truce (laughs) say Appreciate your book, book monks. <laughs> Appreciate your meditation monks. Meditation has had the worst of the struggle. It has become much less practiced by monks. Book stuff is quite common and other kind of ritualistic stuff, but it's important to keep returning to this, that meditation is the center the cultivation, this bhavana, is the center of the teachings. And there are times in cultures where that diminishes, even in the sangha. And in fact, they come up with policies, reasons why that, that's over. And now we have to move on with just uh, rehearsing the dhamma, sort of chanting it in kind of ceremonial stuff. There's literally periods in history where that attitude was propagated amongst the entire Sangha. And then, then there's a counter-revolution and they say, no, wait a second, I'm headed for the forest. Forget this. This is just not what it, it's obvious. <laughs> so 
when we cultivate these, then wisdom comes up. So wisdom also can be a faculty and it can be overcome by its opposites. And sometimes the opposite is just pure speculation and uh, bright people are more prone to this. So this is sometimes a problem for what has been a, a badge of honor or something that helps you get recognition and jobs and so forth, like intelligence, discursive intelligence, academic intelligence, sometimes is a problem for it defeats wisdom sometimes. Smartness, <laughs> kind of intellectual smartness can be a problem, can interfere with wisdom. So wisdom is to know the tone you're going for, the whole emotional feeling you're going for. And uh, a highly cultivated intellect is very flashy, very mer mercurial, and sometimes interferes with the entrance into this beautiful emotional and feeling state. So how these become powers is that they're powers when they cannot be overcome by their opposites. So faith is a power when you are not lost in doubts. You've explored it enough to have deep and unshakable confidence in the value and the essential truth. You've had some experience with how this, this path, the Eightfold Path, the development of sila, of your virtue, your, your behavior in the world, assisting your, your mind, the, the, you've understood this mindfulness and the right effort. You are now also, of course, to some degree, alienated from society as well. <laughs> You're... <laughs> Somehow you can't join in the party anymore. <laughs> but not a bad price to pay. And you have tasted enough of this that it's no doubt in your mind. And it isn't shaken. You don't wake up in the middle of the night thinking, what have I been up to? Like, what am I doing? Like, everybody else is, nobody else is doing this. So that, ha that stops. Now it's a power. Energy uh, is not defeated by whim. You know, it's not defeated by a little bit of dullness or fatigue or anything like that. You, you've been through this before. You know the remedies. You stir it up. By the way, this is a very common phrase in all of the nine mentions of energy. Uh, stirring up energy. So the Buddha is actually... He doesn't, you're not just waiting for it. You cannot, it's not like, I can't understand. I don't have energy. I guess I'll go to sleep and hope that it comes tomorrow. You know, he talks about stirring it up through various mental exercises, physical movement, uh, various little techniques for stirring up energy, refreshing yourself both internally and with the body. And this becomes reliable and is not 
cannot be, you don't fall into extended periods of sloth and so forth. Mindfulness, you don't fall into extended chaos of waking, like daydreaming and distraction. Mindfulness, of course, the more you practice it, the more it kind of becomes automatic and snaps you out of, like, without even trying. At first, you have to try a lot. You keep, you drift off. You don't even know. Ajahn Yuridamo calls it being kidnapped. You, you're kidnapped again and again. You wake up in an alley someplace or released in a forest. <laughs> yeah. Kidnappers pick you up as you're walking down the sidewalk. You get kidnapped and end up in a store sipping coffee, and you have no idea how this happened. What what went on between that moment on the sidewalk and now I was gone somewhere. Oh yes, now I'm back. I must be mindful. <laughs> Actually, mind so mindfulness is kind of like your security guards, your bodyguards prevent kidnapping. And it snaps in. By, it starts to snap in by itself. It kind of pulls you out of the daydreaming reveries that you have because you started to practice and you're just like, oh, oh yeah, right. Yeah. How did that happen? I didn't even try. Yes, right. So it starts to be self-generating. Samadhi, now that's, we're talking supernormal. So if it's a power, it means that you can access it. But I think I can give you some credits for being able to concentrate, say, in reading some dhamma, you know, reading a sutta or reading a talk by yours truly, or watching a video of a talk by yours truly, without clicking out after three minutes just to check out the weather and the news and then back. <laughs> I saw that. I can see you. When you're looking at my videos, I'm looking at you too. Uh, so, so that's a concentration that is worthy of praise. I mean, the study concentration, the examination concentrate, like thinking about it concentration, where you actually have a continuous process of, of immersion in it, that's great. But finally, which is, now this is an exalted thing, which uh, not everybody gets. And it's very clear that it's above normal. So this word that is quite often used is supernormal, which sounds very mystical, but it means above, you know, not, not, you're better than normal. So your concentration is better than the normal person's concentration, which is these days is not saying much. I'm, but I'm thinking that perhaps in the fifth century BC or even in the first century BC that because of less stimulation that people would have a greater access to a serene experience of just being, you know. I remember walking around in the, the, on Amsran in the, the Thai villages, the farming villages. So, we, so we're going in the Northeast, it's one of the poorest areas. And this is back in early 90s and these houses are just thatched roofs and and what are called dings or kind of a bed a, a, a little raised platform that people would just sit around on nothing going on 
but no problem with nothing going on, just being there. And nobody was passed out on it or anything like that. It was early in the morning. It's six o'clock in the morning and people just being. <laughs> it's serene. It's probably changing rapidly now with the marketing of televisions and computers and all of that stuff, mind rapidly changes. So it's quite a, quite a thing to, to even have the courage to come to a retreat like this. Most people are afraid, would be terrified by this whole experience of just like, where's the television? <laughs> uh, what do you mean you're, <laughs> you're going to sit there? <laughs> So this is the experience of being. We have it in us. Uh, it must have been strongly cultivated because most of our evolution has taken place in low-stimulus situations. You know? Just what did the Chippewa Indians do all winter? Uh, they weren't playing tennis. Like, it's, <laughs> it's limited. <laughs> your, your activities are limited. They told stories some degree, yes. They sat around in a big empty room and told each other stories. And the stories had meanings. Yes. So this is, you are evolutionarily designed for this situation that we're in right now. This is natural. So this is mindfulness and then concentration cannot be overcome, meaning that you can enter the third stage, the supernormal one is jhana or the edge of jhana. And there's this, and when we come to the seven factors of enlightenment, there is this funny little factor. It's uh, the fifth factor, pasadi. And uh, it just, it does, it, it's, kind of a mysterious thing, but it's really, it's just before samadhi. You see this, the seven factors are mindfulness, investigation of dhamma, energy, joy, so in a, this emotional thing, and then this pasadi, this uh, serenity, but it doesn't seem to qualify for samadhi, inclusion in samadhi. So it's, it's something on the edge of samadhi so this is a quality of uh, the enlightened mind, and it also leads to the enlightened mind. So I don't want to get too far into the seven factors because we're in the five powers, but the seven factors have similarities to the five faculties and the five powers in that seven faculty, the seven, um, <laughs> the seven factors, both are what lead to enlightenment and make up enlightenment. So there, there's two levels of the game with seven factors. There's the development of the seven factors, and then there's their full arrival, which is enlightenment itself. So the same way with the five faculties, they, they arrive at strength. And then the definition of strength is that you are in command now. You can pull it off each time. And this is very similar to practical skills you've, you've all developed in life. This is, uh, so before I was a monk, I was a hermit. 
and then before I was a hermit, I was a musician, and I was in classical musician. And so in order to play on stage a, cl a whole classical concert, you have to be able to pull it off if you're going to actually get paid for that. And that means you've got to practice it until you are... It's exactly the same as this, uh, the faculties and the powers. Until you're, as you're a student, you know, you're in the first year performance, you're practicing your scales and your hours and hours and hours and hours of this. But you, you can, you, you blow it from time to time. It's not, it can be overcome. It's not good enough. And then the next year, so you, every now and then you, you luck out, you get through the, you know, no problems, but then something, a little distraction in the audience and then things happen. Have a little bit bad day or something. Uh, you can't pull it off every time. So this is, you're, you're, you're going to be trained. Your, your teacher is going to tell you, you got to be able to pull this off on a bad day. So amateurs can pull it off on a good day. Professional, you got to pull it off on a bad day as well. Advice, what? Get up and play your performance at three in the morning when you're really tired. You know, just out of, get up, out of sleep and play it. See if you can pull it off. So this is, you're trying to turn this thing into a power where you can actually pull it off each time. And this is what a, a golf professional has to do. This is what all kinds of people who have skills and crafts have to go from that um, finding out how to do it, but with enough repetition and investigation and that you can pull it off under all kinds of circumstances. Uh, just learning to drive a car, you know, like the, the, when you're just starting, you've, you had enough training and practice, but it's very easy to go wrong on the, on the beginner's thing. And, uh, but after a while you can, you can drive to, you can be sipping coffee and driving to work and you don't even know how you got there. You know, it's just all automatic. You can pull it off and then something, somebody comes out of the left lane and, and you, you have the, facility to handle that situation. You don't lose it in that situation. This, there's, this, uh, the, the whole teachings of the development of the Dhamma is much more similar to uh, sports and art than it is, well, maybe not art, but craft. Sports and craft than it is to ideas. It's a lot of simple repetition until you're, you can do it and you can pull it off in different circumstances. And it's the same kind of systematic training that people use in physical activities, training if, to, to dance or any of these. There's, some of the arts have, are both an art and a craft. So it's very similar to the the development of craft, you have to understand the theory, you go to the classes, you, you mull it over, and then you practice again and again and again until you can, you can pull it off automatically, and then you can pull it off under different circumstances, juggling and all this kind of stuff. This is what these, these lists, these 
the 37 requisites are all about this. It's a lot, and it's called a practice, a path, a practice, a training, a cultivation. I often use uh, the simile of a garden, you know, gardening for the four right efforts. But now I'm, I'm thinking more, it's more like learning to play music than gardening, actually. You just start by touching the thing or looking at the thing and then you're showing up notes and it, you slowly put that together and you practice and then you get to see what comes out. Having been a guitar teacher, a music teacher, most of them don't practice. <laughs> but the ones that do, yeah, they make music. So this is, this is a practice. It's not much different than any of those worldly arts and crafts. And that's why people love those things. They devote their lives to those things, don't they? They will, it'll break up marriages, those kind of things, those, um, et cetera. But, and you can, make, you can make a livelihood with it. And sometimes if you're obsessed with, obscure things that don't sell. You can lose your livelihood with that fascination, etc. It is, this is Dhamma practice has got to be, you have to realize it's a something you, it's a thing you love. It's a, it's a stuff you do and it is rewarding. And to the degree that you'll, uh, it's not a money thing. You do it despite the fact that you don't get paid for it. And that's the way some of the arts are and some of the sports are and everything. It's just, yeah, you're really going through your bank account, but you can't stop doing it, you know. Like going to a retreat, you know. It's a lot of time, got away from home, a lot of travel, all this kind of stuff. But once you're into it, it flourishes by itself. And also, of course, as these things develop, you can't go back. You can't go back. Once they become powers, you can't, you can't go back. <laughs> that, I had a call from Piedasi, our, uh, our steward. Many of you know Piedasi. She's in uh, Quebec City. And she, trying to plan a holiday, if you live in a monastery all the time and you decide to take a month off, where do you go? She used to go to B&Bs in the forest and like live in a small cabin in the forest like she would here. So she's living in a, in a her holidays in a small cabin in the forest. I don't, anyway, she decided she would go to a Catholic monastery, a Catholic nunnery that is open for guests to stay at, but she would pass through Montreal. So she thought, okay, I'm in Montreal. What'll I do? So she went to an art gallery and there's Picasso's and all this kind of stuff. She was saying, it's over for me. It's just paint on the, paint on canvas. I don't know what that, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It, uh, things fall away and they don't come back and that's good. It's not, it's alarming from the ordinary worldly perspective, such fallings away 
are sound like you've been smoking too much dope or something like you're losing your motivation, dear. (laughs) Yes, you are. You're losing your worldly motivation as all of the great philosophers, the real philosophers and spiritual practitioners did. So that's a good sign. Don't be alarmed. And as you're, as these things become empowered, then that's one of the side effects. It's another game that you are playing and it leads in different directions. And if you want to, there's a video that I made a, a talk that I gave called life is the game that must be played because you, you can't get out of this. You're, as soon as you're born, you're in it. And there, you can't not play. You have to play. And you have to decide, what's the next move? And you can't say, somebody else decide that for me. Because that's a move in the game. So whether you like it or not, you, you, you're continuously presented with the demand to choose, to make choices all the time and you can't get out of it you must play this game some people try to get out of it off a bridge or something like that that's just another move in the game that's like so that's your that's your next that's your choice that's how you are playing the game so you want to play it that way but you can't get out of having to make that choice So this spiritual faculties and the spiritual powers are your choices of how you play this game. And uh, those that leads in a, another direction, which basically other things just fall away behind you. And uh, it's, it's not the way most people are going. So there's a certain amount of... Uh, courage required to walk into that unknown and the less less traveled path the, the the path less traveled by the road less traveled by is it yeah so now you have 10 and you of course have memorized them now Yes, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Yes, and that doubles into 10. And they're extremely interesting and core issues in all of the other path uh, factors. And as I will, as I talk more about the other ones, you will see how they interweave with them. So I'll leave that for your reflection tonight.